You are listening to Studying Pixels, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan, I'm a game studies scholar from Germany. I'm Dan, a Japanese scholar from Texas. And you can find us every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Today we're going to talk about a bunch of different subjects. Things that were once popular or even part of the mainstream, maybe even at the peak of technological development, then they kind of disappeared, faded into the background, and later they made a resurgence. It's funny, I remember somebody saying on YouTube 15 years ago, so you're going to have to forgive me for not citing my sources properly, <laughs> but that video games uh, depreciate at the same rate as bananas. <laughs> and it really is true, because what is at the top of the heap today will be outclassed very soon tomorrow. It is very rare that games just stand the test of time. For example, mm. just recently I've seen Nino Kuni mm. again, and I thought, I mean, Nino Kuni, that's a JRPG from the PS3 era, if I recall correctly. It's a couple of years old. It's 2017, 2018 or something. Mm. And that game still looks fantastic. I saw it and I thought, wow, this could come out nowadays and on the Switch at least, it would be counted as being <laughs> completely up to technological standard. <laughs> That's the other thing we have to take into account. Which platform are we talking about? Yeah. But yeah, I think you're right. I think it's interesting to think about aesthetics in that way because there are certain things that you can do when constructing a game stylistically that make it seem more timeless than its uh, its contemporaries. And I think the sort of Studio Ghibli zest that Nino Kuni has makes it stand out, definitely. Yeah, a hand-drawn art style, a, a pixel art style, which is something that we're going to address in just a moment. These things are usually quite persistent over time. They, the Super Mario game, an old Super Mario game, Super Mario World, for example, on the Super Nintendo, mm. still looks absolutely gorgeous. If you plug in a Super Nintendo and you start playing it, it's fantastic. Yeah, it turns out that in video games, if you want, if you're shooting for timeless, you want to go for a very particular time. <laughs> you want to you want to catch it in amber, like the mosquito from Jurassic Park. Exactly. Yes. These are subjects that we're going to go into. But before we do, let me briefly remind you out there that if you like this show and you want to help us make it happen, then you can do so by supporting us and joining Studying Pixels Plus, where you can get all of our episodes entirely ad free a lovely sticker, and monthly plus episodes. Some of these plus episodes, they are deep dives into video game culture. Others are there to actually help you do some research and study. If you're curious about it, then you can go to studyingpixels.com plus to find out more. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And here we are talking about aesthetics, functionalities, and narrative tropes that were once really popular, then went into the abyss of being no longer popular and then made a comeback into the mainstream or at least within the domain of indie games. And the first thing that we need to address is, of course, pixel art. We already spoke about this briefly. Pixel art is, when referred to nowadays, it means a kind of charming, nostalgic aesthetic, an aesthetic where you can uh, see individual pixels and tell them apart from one another yeah think about like we mentioned mario think about his sprite or even the backgrounds and how they used to look in video games i always think of uh the classic example to me is castlevania with how detailed and creepy everything looked just by using 8-bit pixel technology uh it really is something that it definitely feels like a throwback and yet uh, it seems to be everywhere now. <laughs> yeah, the amazing thing is that at the time of the 1970s and 80s, maybe even into the 1990s, uh, pixel art was not pixel art. It was just how video games looked. Mm -hmm. It was not like, oh, this is a specific kind of style that we do. I mean, of course, it does have its predecessors, for example, in things like the mosaic or in embroidery where you also have the aspect that you see the individual components if you look closely, but if you take a step back, then it all comes together as a very, like almost as a, as a realistic image, even though it is not really realistic. That basically the challenge is that you have to arrange the individual parts in such a way that the brain of the onlooker automatically fills in the gaps and makes it feel like, or makes it seem realistic, like the actual thing that it is supposed to represent. And there's something to be said, I suppose, for the realism of pixel art or how video games just used to look, contributing to the imagination of the player. Because as you're saying, you have to kind of intimate that there's this thing going on. Like when you look at Super Mario World, when you're running around as Mario, you know that you're not looking at, it's not, <laughs> it's not trying to trick you into thinking Mario is really there, right? It's, it's, this kind of agreement that you have with the game that, okay, I understand that this uh, collection of pixels is supposed to be a little plumber and he's riding on another collection of pixels that's supposed to be a dinosaur. <laughs> I understand yeah, it that. Is a, it's a symbolic relationship mm. between the basically the imagery and what it's supposed to represent. And it's a very thin line to walk because on the one hand, you want to give all the necessary information so that onlookers and players can fill out the gaps. On the other hand, you can't give too much information at the time that we're talking about now because of the technological constraints. Like there would only be a limited amount of pixels that can be displayed at any given time and they always need to be actualized um, whenever the ray of a CRT television... <laughs> hits the screen again. So 
you can, you have to work within the confines of technology. This would be the case in things like Space Invaders or Pac-Man is also one of the classics where you can clearly identify the ghosts, even though they, I mean, they have all the essential components of ghosts, but they don't look like realistic ghosts. Inky, Blinky, Pinky, and Clyde are, are, Correct. are good friends. <laughs> I also always have to think of the early um, LucasArts adventures, and even the later ones, actually. I mean, Maniac Mansion is one that I noted down from 1987, mm. or uh, one that I really loved was Day of the Tentacle That's a good from one. 1983. Yeah. It's, a, it's a great game. It's even nowadays when you play it in its original um, style, because there has have been remakes with a more like hand-drawn art style, I mm -hmm. think. But back then it was like all pixelated. And that in itself had a beautiful and charming aesthetic. I think that it, it really does. This is a good place to start with this episode because it is such a good example of uh, technological limitations leading to the success of video games in a lot of ways because i mean obviously if a game if the last of us part two came out in 1984 it would have been as big as it is now i'm sure but there's something to be said of the technological limitations driving nostalgia for a time where we didn't have all of that capability and i think it's kind of what you're what you're getting at with the day of the tentacle which is it's almost more imaginative to go into a game like that when you're seeing these uh, these smaller representations of things and you don't have the full scale of cinema to, to boost your understanding of what's going on. Yeah, it also really lent itself to comic aesthetic because mm. something like Day of the Tentacle, there's a reason why a remaster of this game would bring hand-drawn art to the table. The same with Monkey Island, which is also something that started out very pixelated looking, but... Basically, the remakes that try to um, give it a hand-drawn style, they basically merely flesh out what an onlooker would have imagined to have seen back in the day. Well, this is where we run into uh, some issues, I think, with how things are perceived in the gaming public, <laughs> which is a whole other host of problems we could get into. But I think that... There's something to be said of, so those hand-drawn remakes, beautiful, tons of artistry goes into them. They're really impressive. And it's it's interesting to see backlash of certain titles like that from people who have played the originals. And I, th I think, I would put it, that the reason is because even that level of detail that you're giving it by going into the hand-drawn style gives a sort of authorial intent that wasn't there or expressed in the pixel art. And so all of a sudden, the person who has played the pixel art game feels like their imaginative interpretation of what they were seeing is being dictated to them. Like, this is what you saw. And if that's not the case, then they feel like, well, I, that's not the game I played then. This is, this is something yeah. else. I don't like this. That might be the very reason why many of these remakes especially of point and click video games offer you that you can basically switch back into the old aesthetics mm. then you basically have the new technological abilities of faster computation shorter loading loading times and such things while at the same time being able to enjoy the game in its original visuals to stimulate exactly that kind of imagination that you must have used at the time when you played it for the first time even games that aren't remakes 
give that option because uh, I'm thinking of a game that you recently played and really enjoyed, Dragon Quest XI. Did you ever play the 2D swap that they that they just put into the game <laughs> where you could play it like an old NES game? Yeah, I tried it out. It's a really peculiar one because they basically made the game twice <laughs> if i understand this correctly yeah. and it's a huge game yeah. and they made it once as a modern jrpg with 3d optics just as you would imagine like an over the shoulder camera and they made the game as well as a 2d uh, super nintendo style adventure i think that that's that's a really interesting acknowledgement of your roots and also the the <laughs> The amount of time it takes to say, yeah, we're going to make this again, but we're going to deliberately call upon the aesthetics of our original games in case anybody playing this says, oh, I miss how it used to look. I, I don't know if that's exactly why they did it, but I just love the idea that I love the idea that somewhere at Square Enix, some, you know, uh, executives or some creative production leads were like, you know, Dragon Quest has been around a long time. We have a lot of older fans in their mid 40s. What can we do to make them happy? <laughs> yeah, it really shows that Dragon Quest XI is a celebration of the series itself. Mm. It draws a lot upon earlier titles and draws references to them. There's even an entire area called Tickington, an optional area in the game, in which you can travel back to locations from previous Dragon Quest games and engage with former stories. So it's all really a celebration of nostalgia, I would say. Mm. It's an interesting aspect of the pixel art resurgence being a celebration of uh, of these older games too. Because as we mentioned up top, video games are often seen as kind of a disposable medium, which is frustrating because there's so much incredible storytelling in them. But because it's linked to the technological advances, more so than cinema was or is, I think that we see the technological changes happen so quickly that people feel like, oh, I, I missed this era because, and it only lasted for 10 years of, of video games and I wish we could go back to it. So I'm not too surprised that the people making video games now who certainly grew up with the NES and the SNES are saying, I wish that there were games that looked like the games I played as a kid. And I think it can really go by in a blink. Mm. I, I, the research that I did, I found that... Um, basically the Nintendo 64 seemed to have ended the era of pixel art with uh, games like uh, Super Mario uh, 64 where suddenly the goal shifted. Mm. Um, previously the goal might have been to uh, design vast pixel art worlds such as in Final Fantasy 6 that um, kind of stimulate the player's fantasy and the imagination, whereas with then Super Mario 64, it was completely different. The camera was a little, was liberated basically from its isometric position. The models were no longer um, focusing on the individual pixels, but it was all about, you know, angles and uh, bigger shapes where the mm -hmm. individual pixels disappear. This is the idea that with this beginning strive for photorealism, the pixels are no longer in the foreground. They step into the background. They still make up the image. Technically, every video game is made of pixels, of course. <laughs> Not every, but most. Most video games are made up of pixels that flutter around on the screen. But you're not supposed to see them anymore because if you see them, 
then people will say it's bad graphics. Ah, uh, the graphics discussion. <laughs> I think <laughs> it, it really did. You can, you can mark the original uh, tombstone of pixelated games with the term graphics. Because when that kind of came into the mainstream and people started saying, well, what do the graphics look like? How are the graphics? When it started becoming part of uh, magazine game reviews and it was less about the overall aesthetic and more about just what is the graphical capability of this game, I think you saw a huge dip in quality across the board in games. And I remember too, I was just old enough with the N64 and the PlayStation 1 uh, that all of the marketing campaigns were not about the any anything other than what do the graphics look like? How photorealistic is it? Uh, the I'm thinking of the original console wars between the SNES and the, the Genesis where it was just all about bits and it didn't matter what games you were talking about. And then when the N64 came out, it was like, oh, 64 bits. What can top that? Oh, the PlayStation, it's on CD. It can hold more information so it can make it look more like, you know, a movie or something. And then we were off to the races. Yeah, I think the movie comparison is very apt here. Mm. The idea basically emerged that games ought to be of a photorealistic quality. That's at least what they strive for. Of course, they still haven't reached it, but they're going in the direction. And mm. the question was just who was ahead in the race? So then it became a race of technology. And of course, that would influence things like video game trailers, because trailers are then no longer about the actual content of the game, the narrative or the gameplay, but rather about showing off how technologically impressive the game looks. Because that's what trailers well. It's like if you have an intricate JRPG mechanic or a story that spans 150 hours, uh, that's hard to put into a trailer. Whereas impressive graphics, you can show it off immediately. And people, we're talking about people maybe in the early 2000s now, hmm. would be like, wow. Speaking of the early 2000s, you've unlocked a memory in my brain, Stefan. So, ah, do I get a trophy for it? Yeah, yeah, I'll <laughs> give you one. The, there was a period of time probably 2000 to maybe 2006, I would say, where Sony in particular uh, would... So we're talking the age of the PlayStation 2. They would put out these trailers or these uh, TV spots, commercials, that in retrospect were like tricking you into thinking that you were looking at a movie. And I remember two in particular. There was uh, Eco. Eco was a big one. I remember the commercials for that made it seem like it was a film. And uh, Jack and Daxter, another big one, another big seminal PlayStation 2 game where I remember the trailers coming on TV and not realizing it was a game until the PlayStation 2 logo popped up. And I think that that speaks to, all right, for, we're, we're, trying to, we're trying to move away from like, quote, video game uh, aesthetics and try to make us all think that we're talking about film. Yeah, it would be the underlying notion that video games would be not only better, but also more economically successful mm. if they were more like films, which is something that I think is still very present if uh, you out there take some time to observe something like the Summer Game Fest, 
which will be coming up in a couple of months, and you just watch the trailer reels and the trailer showcases, then I must admit I often get very tired of seeing these cinematic trailers. Not because I don't enjoy a good cinematic trailer. I enjoy a, such a trailer as much as anyone. But it's just boring if you are talking about video games and all you see is basically CGI rendered trailers that follow the pattern and the rhythm of a Hollywood movie trailer. And you know that this actually has not much to do with the game. It's a nice little pitch, but I would get more out of it if I would just see five minutes of gameplay. There is such a disconnect between what you see because you have to, especially <laughs> if you're if you're jaded and cynical like us, <laughs> you have to you have to sit there and think. I'm joking, of course. You have to sit there and think. Uh, all right, what I'm seeing is not the game, or if it is part of the game, it's probably a very curated part of it. I imagine that this game will not look like this through and through, and so you start you stop thinking about the game itself and you start thinking about how the finished product will no doubt be different from the thing that you're seeing. Whereas with pixel art, you know, I remember in 2014 when I saw the, uh, the Kickstarter trailer for Shovel Knight, Shovel Knight looks exactly like Shovel Knight looks. <laughs> it's, it's hard to ah. fake that, you know? This is a good point to make. Shovel Knight, Shovel Knight and basically the, entire resurgence of pixel art because now we spoke about how it was originally basically at the peak of video game culture and the video game industry then we illustrated how it went away and everyone was kind of fixated on photorealism and while that was still ongoing in the 2010s i would say early 2010s people started to rediscover pixel art and they started to make games especially in the sector of indie video games that partially were influenced by having fewer resources at their disposal, but also having a profound nostalgic affection for this older style of how video games used to look. That's when such, title, uh, such titles like Fez, mm. uh, Shovel Knight, uh, Papers, Please, and ultimately also the tremendously influential Stardew Valley came out. Stardew Valley came out in 2016 as a game that was made by one single person. You can also count Undertale, um, to Certainly. these games yep. yeah video games that look as if they were much older <laughs> and are usually made by small groups of people on a low budget and still are so tremendously su uh, successful that major publishers would look over and would think like mm, we must make our trailers even more impressive and fast <laughs> well you know it's funny because they they either said we must make them e even more cinematic or they said well hey what do we got in the garbage bin what can we what, what's pixely that we can pull out because <laughs> thinking about what they did to my poor boy Mega Man uh after <laughs> Shovel, after Shovel Knight came out because there the this resurgence did kind of uh it left the indie world for a while because these games were so successful there was so much uh attention being given to them that there was a little bit of a mainstream kind of not pixel art resurgence but games that were popular during that time were suddenly getting uh sequels or they were getting new entries so i think the biggest one that i can think of is uh mega man mega man 10 was a was a deliberate pixel remake of of the mega man games it was a no, it was a new mega man and then mega man 11 after shovel knight came out kind of said, okay, well, we understand that you like these old 
games aesthetically, but what if we put shiny new graphics on them and Mega Man looked like a little boy <laughs> that you could actually see running around? And it didn't do so well. It didn't take off, no. Mm -mm. But the thing is that I think nowadays we can observe two interesting dynamics. One is the return to pixel art, mm. uh, even by major publishers. So, of course, the indie game movement would then inform the further steps that major publishers would take. This would be things such as Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Shredder's Revenge, oh, which yeah. came out just last year and is a sequel to an older Ninja Turtles game or to the older Ninja Turtles series. And it strongly and prominently and proudly features pixel art, right? Mm. It really is. It, it's, if done well, we're in a time where you can take the technological advancements that have happened in the past few decades and go back to that kind of aesthetic. I think about the, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game is a great example because you look at that and your brain says, oh, this looks older. But if you understand kind of the technology behind it, you can you can look at it and say, that wouldn't have been possible. That movement wouldn't have been possible in 1985. That shading, this, you know, the, um, what you know, what do you call it? The parallax, right? The way that the screen manipulates itself to change your viewpoint. Like they couldn't have done that back then. And yet it still feels like this old retro game because of the pixel aesthetic. And it takes you back to that time. Yeah, the same is true with Octopath Traveler, I think. Yeah. Um, Octopath Traveler, which came out in 2018 and it was followed by Triangle Strategy and Octopath Traveler 2 most recently. Mm. Uh, I find it truly impressive because these games, they are published by Square Enix. So this is a major publisher. But curiously enough, uh, it's obviously a Japanese company. Mm. And it appears to me almost as if um, at least a huge amount of Japanese video game publishers and developers have been more confident in honing this pixel art style or just simply sticking with it and bringing it back. Uh, maybe also because Nintendo is notoriously not taking place any, uh, not taking part anymore in this race for photorealism mm. with the Switch. I think they've clearly abandoned that idea and instead focus on other things like gameplay that necessitates a more simplistic form of graphic illustration. And that's why things such as pixel art titles are really um, prone for genres such as the JRPG, which these games are huge and it takes a long time to build. And the focus is not necessarily just the graphics. That's also cool, of course, and many JRPGs look incredibly beautiful, but it seems to me like a, a pragmatic uh, thing to do that at the same time hones the tradition and the history of where it comes from. I think pragmatic is a great word for it, especially when you're talking about a company like Square Enix. Because thinking back to what, what you had said about Dragon Quest XI being the celebration of the history of it, Final Fantasy has evolved past this. It's known now for... Uh, as as we're recording this, the Final Fantasy 16 state of play came out, and it was mind blowing. The the again to talk about the graphics, it's you know the Square Enix is in another league when it comes to cinematics and how they uh, how they create those in their their Final Fantasy titles. But they're in this unique position where everybody loves Square Enix and Final Fantasy for a lot of these older games, and that's what they think about. The Pixel Remaster is coming out in a couple weeks. It's the first six games. 
So people definitely have nostalgia for that, but Final Fantasy has evolved so far beyond that, it would be incredibly jarring, as much as I would like it, for Final Fantasy 17 to be a pixel game. They're not going to do yeah. that. But, no. but what they can do is they can create a new IP called Octopath Traveler, which is specifically uh, geared towards that aesthetic. And then what they can do is they can take all of the immense talent at Square Enix with music orchestration, voice ta- uh, voice acting, um, background art, character design, and they can just funnel that in and say, all right, all the attention we would put on graphics for Final Fantasy 16, put it in everything else for Octopath Traveler. Yeah, but the interesting thing is that Octopath Traveler, if we were to uh, get this as a new game in, let's say, 2005, mm. then people would probably say, this looks like trash. Yeah, this, yeah. This looks old, you know, Final Fantasy looks much better. I'm going to play Final Fantasy instead. Nowadays we see the opposite kind of dynamic of where people are like, wow, this looks so beautiful. At least I'm like that. And yeah. I look at it, I see it pop up on a, in a trailer show, and I think, wow, this looks amazing. It's, it resonates with my sense of nostalgia. It sticks to this idea of pixel art, but in a way, but way different. Like it's, it keeps the pixels deliberately visible. It's not a pragmatic compromise anymore. It's something that is a deliberate decision to make to create so much with so little. Mm. And of course, importantly, as you said, I think it's very important to understand that nowadays pixel art is not what pixel making video games with this kind of pixel art style was in the 80s and 90s. Nowadays, of course, we've got like an audio track that is like a high high quality recordings of orchestras. We've got deliberate shaders and vignettes that Octopath Traveler employs and 3D layers that are much too complicated for something like an NES, a video game, but it just kind of plays on the on the keyboard of nostalgia <laughs> in such a perfect way. And it's 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 something that I think nostalgia is absolutely a huge part of it. But I think also going back to what we were talking about a while ago. There is something so beautiful in the minimalistic storytelling of the visuals, because I had mentioned in our most recent review roundup episode that I was so emotionally affected by a scene in Octopath Traveler 2, more so than any other game I've played in the last probably two or three years. And it's it's just pixels when you watch it, but it's the combination of the the voice acting, the the orchestration that plays. And I think what is so beautiful about the pixel art aesthetic is that it's also what I brought to it to bring that character to life and flesh him out just by looking at the little 16-bit character that I was, I was actually controlling. Shall we take a brief break before we go into a different subject, which is full motion video? Absolutely. <laughs> 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. And we are back to talk about full motion video, another kind of video gamey thing that came and went, and then it suddenly returned in a rather unexpected fashion. First of all, what is full motion video? That means exactly what is the clues in the name, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of using character models, previously we discussed pixel art, right, where you would place individual pixels and make character models. That's not the case with full motion video. There, you just literally take a more or less professional actor and then you film them and you implement the clip as an actual video into your video game. I just, I love the, the subtle jab you just made there. <laughs> Some, somewhat professional. It's a range. It depends. Yeah, it's a range. It, it really is a range because when full motion video started, it was popularized by games such as Night Trap in mm. 1992, um, Wing Commander 3 in 1994, Phantasmagoria in 1995. These, I think, are three games that really popularized the technology. Night Trap and Phantasmagoria are both games that are considered like almost like B-movie kind of games, B-games, like a little bit trashy, coming a little bit from the era where there was not that much uh, parental control and supervision, and people were pretty much doing what they wanted to do. Whereas Wing Commander 3 was actually um, uh, featured high-profile actors. There was a game called Ripper. Did you ever hear about this one? No. Luckily, I didn't. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but Christopher Walken is in it. And oh. so sometimes you would get these, you know, you, you would turn on a full motion video game and every now and again, like Tim Curry would show up or Mark Hamill would be in it. And you would say, what, what, what? What parking ticket did you have to pay off? Why are you doing this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
But that was really, I think it was just the peak of technology at the time. We're talking about the mid-90s here. Yeah. And it was unclear where video games would go. And so all sorts of new technologies were experimented with. It was the time when the CD-ROM made a lot of these things possible. Mm. Um, as you said, Dan, there's a lot more data storage on a CD than there would be on a cartridge. And so this is how games would set themselves apart by saying we actually do not just model characters, but we actually just film people. Remember, see the through line here. The idea, I mentioned this before, the notion of saying uh, video games would be better if they were films, which is not something that I would argue, but mm. it's uh, more like part of the zeitgeist in the 90s and early 2000s, where you would see videos, uh, video games adapting uh, technology for films. Which is really funny, too, because this is also around the time of, uh, as previously mentioned on Studying Pixels, the incredible flop of the Super Mario Brothers movie, where it's very obvious that at the time, video games and movies, never the twain should meet, because it's just, they don't, I don't know why there was such an effort, other than photorealism, I suppose, because of the the obsession with graphics to make these things the same thing but you can definitely see it in full motion video and as much as long as uh pixel art aesthetics lasted because of um graphical limitations and other technological limitations this was much more of a flash in the pan fmv yeah. games it was on the sega uh was it the sega cd and that was that was really where it shined and that was about it well, I also remember that there was a title I played, which is called Mega Race 2. That was in 1996. I don't think the game has ever gained much recognition, <laughs> but it was... I don't know how I got... how I received this game. I have no idea. I played it when I was a kid. And uh, it was basically like a, a futuristic dystopian racing video game. And it was fun. Um, you could shoot rockets at other cars and they would all like... You would go around in a looping and, and stuff like that. Um, it it was fun. And its only component of full motion video is that there are these sequences in between where you have like a kind of game showy 90s game show clips that basically yeah. try to bind the different races together to make it seem as if you're experiencing some kind of narrative. It had lots of problematic tropes. If you look at it nowadays, then you see like there's this you know, there was this kind of idea in the 90s of the uh, the young, attractive, blonde, but also kind of dumb uh, show, show girl. Yeah. And uh, she was in there as well. And it was, it was a very strange kind of game. But the races in itself, in themselves, they were fun. And uh, that's why I still have this game on my mind. That's why I still was able to remember it. Otherwise, I would have mm. probably just forgotten. But it was part of this thing that part of this theme of saying we want to make games that are that tie into the logic of television for example like a tv game show i think the if if we were to dissect why this one came back i think there's a when i think of full motion video i think of what you just described stuff on which is the sort of uh televisual aspect of things where maybe the story you're you're almost rewarded with a full motion video if you progress in the story long enough but i also think that a huge part of it, because I'm thinking of Wing Commander now in particular, there's a kind of intimacy with the full motion video that I think 
is its own it's very particular to fmv games where this person is talking directly at you the fourth wall is being broken you're being kind of initiated into this world and they more so than a, a video game would give you a tutorial it's like hey cadet you're here and you have your uh command console and you need to follow me and do x y and z to figure out what we're doing here so it's almost like you're there's there's a, a quicker bridge into the world that feels more intimate with that character who's, you know, a person. I think that's probably why, if I had to guess, between that and then the televisual aspects that you just described is why people say, oh, I wish that would come back. Yeah, also just because I think it, it enabled people to incorporate authentic talent into their, mm. uh, into their video games. People such as Mark Hamill... Um, if you were to produce a game like Wing Commander 3 in a different way, then you would probably have to make a sort of character model that looks maybe remotely similar to Mark Hamill, but you would barely be able to identify him. <laughs> Not enough so that it would be worth paying paying him for the job. Yeah. Whereas if you have him actually act in front of the camera, you make it more close to what, he, what his presence would be on an actual TV or, or movie screen. However, the big problem with all of these full motion video things is that they are very limited in their interactivity because everything needs to be prepared as a video. There's some games such as Dragon's Lair from mm. 1991, which implemented this where you largely make decisions. Do I go left or do I go right? And then a short video clip plays out and shows you what's happening. But it is really difficult to bring interactivity in resonance with full motion video. I... I think Dragon's Lair and uh, was the Space Ace, I think, was the other one. Uh, so I, I don't want to go into the full history of Dragon's Lair because it's fascinating and it's not what people think it is. If you want a really good encapsulation, I would recommend that you watch on YouTube. There's a, a video creator named H Bomber Guy, and he has a brilliant documentary on Dragon's Lair and how we think... It was created by animator Don Bluth, but realistically it was created by this honestly visionary guy who's largely forgotten to time. Um, but what I want to say about that is what I just mentioned, which is Don Bluth was the poster child for that game. Don Bluth was an animator. He was an ex-Disney guy. He did um, The Secret of Nim. He did All Dogs Go to Heaven. A lot of these kind of late 80s, early 90s huge hits and Dragon's Lair was just like video, full motion video games were given credence by their actors being in them. This game was sold on, hey, look, we have Don Bluth, the animator. He's doing all the animations here. So it was this other kind of weird thing going on where they, I don't know if it was, they didn't feel confident in the game being its own recognizable entity or if it was just, we need to bring in other talent from movies and film and animation to make this serious. Yeah, to make it serious, to make it also something that could obtain greater economic success because it would tie into this talent that is known from, um, well, the medium that video games try to emulate, which mm. is, in this case, I would say maybe like, you know, uh, cartoons as you would see them on television. But the problem, as I said, limited interactivity. And of course, also the second part is that full motion video at a certain point was no longer necessary. When 
motion capturing arrived on the stage when it was possible to create believable characters that players could then also directly control without the confines of a full motion video. That was really the kind of time, I would say, that already started in the early 2000s and in the mid 2000s, it was basically properly established uh, that full motion video had no future in video games, but it came back in a surprising manner um, in very niche um, fields, I would say. Mm. But I was surprised when I played Her Story in 2015. This is an indie game. Uh, I highly recommend it. It is a, a game in which you operate a like a police database, an old police database, and you are watching uh, inter an interview with a certain young lady. Mm. And by watching these interview clips, you always only get like clips of a couple of seconds or like one particular answer. And then you have to type in other keywords and see what other kind of videos you can find. You try to reconstruct a crime that happened and a relationship that she was in. And these are actually full motion video clips that you are watching. They are a real actress just sitting in one single room telling the story and you're trying to assemble it. It is a really charming little indie game mm. that suddenly pointed out, hey, there are actually really cool things we can do with full motion video in video games if we want to. I love that. I love that it's similar to pixel art, but it's it's more niche, I would say, where it's becoming this kind of artistic tool where maybe, you know, it, it, what used to be a technological development or a showcase of how powerful the system was, now it's being used in a game like Her Story, which sounds really good, uh, to kind of be almost like a Brechtian tool to remind you that you're engaging with something that's false by injecting the reality of a real video into it. You're, you're reminded of the artifice. That's re I'm really excited by that. All right. Full motion video. You turn me around. <laughs> <laughs> there are actually many elements of it that you would really enjoy, such as when you realize that y you basically operate an in-game computer, like an old computer with one of these like huge, uh, screens use huge monitors yeah and if if it's off or in the loading times you can see the reflection of someone sitting in front of the computer which would be yourself yeah I love but that. obviously that's not possible but yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it is really smart and also one more title that i want to shout out that surprised me with its implementation of full motion video is hellblade senua sacrifice from 2017 mm. by ninja theory um Hellblade is a game about a picked warrior called Senua who suffers from severe psychosis. And so in the game, they show you only the perspective of Senua onto the world. It's a third-person game, like not a first-person one, but you are basically always in her shoes and mm. you are participating in her perception, in her experience of the world. And that includes, of course, things such as the projections of uh, characters that speak to her. And I was very surprised to find that these are not like character models. Senua is actually the only character model, and then there are, of course, enemies that pop up. But the other side characters that speak to her, they are really like full motion video. They have like dressed up people. They've dressed up actors. 
and put face paint on them and all this kind of stuff. Mm. And they filmed them in a room and then they used all sorts of methods to distort the image and project it into the game and into the game world, which gives it an eerie sort of vibe. It makes it easier for them to produce since it's a studio that did not operate on a huge budget at the time. By now, they've been purchased by Microsoft and they've got all the money that they need. But of course, they needed to make ends meet when they developed the first Hellblade. And also, it is very befitting for this kind of sense of psychosis where you're not sure, is wow. this real or is it not real? That's so cool. And it, yeah, oh, you know, it reminds me, we don't have this on the list uh, and it doesn't warrant a whole discussion, but it, it, this kind of breaking the diegesis of the game to kind of remind you that something is off or something is strange. Um, my most recent experience would be with uh, deliberate glitches. In Octopath Traveler 2, there is a particular ability that one of the characters has to um, glean information from words that people say. And there are a few instances in the game where you'll be looking at the normal screen and the the screen will the colors will get wrong and it'll sit there for a while and the first time it happened i genuinely got up and i said is there something wrong with my tv and then a cutscene starts playing so those kind of moments of in the 80s or the 90s you would have been like oh shoot i gotta go blow on the cartridge or i gotta wipe off the cd now games are using those kind of like breaking moments like uh the fmv just showing up where you're like is there something going on here what's happening uh, I need to take a second now to note down an idea for an episode because as you, <laughs> I think I think you're right and that it's super interesting and that you're wrong and that it doesn't warrant an, an individual episode. So I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna note down for a future episode um, the simulated glitch or simulated bug or mm. simulated crash even because this is something that. Uh, most games are happy to have overcome. Yeah. Like most developers would panic if their release, the release version of their game suddenly crashes. But there are games that actually do this deliberately. I find it interesting that Oct Octopath Traveler 2 does, but there are also things like PT, of course, they simulate crashes. There are many other games that basically pretend and in order or by virtue of doing so, they draw attention to their artificiality as being a video game that runs on a technological system. There's a whole conversation to have had there. I'm looking forward to it. Do you know? Uh, <laughs> do you know the American? Uh, I'll say comedian Andy Kaufman. You heard of that name before? I don't think so. So he was a, re a very interesting person. Who uh, he was a lunatic, I think, but he was also. Oh yes, I have heard of him. You know, okay, now yep. I know him. And I had to. Yeah, you had to say the word lunatic, the lunatic for me yeah. to, <laughs> to, to to understand who it was. Yes, but now I can associate. He had a a show once. It was like a um, comedy special, uh, like an hour of variety show kind of stuff, sketches and things. And he put the the video together and about halfway through it, he deliberately messed with the um, color gradient and the tracking of the video so that it looked like it was like half of it was going underneath the screen. And it was sort of like almost as if the VHS tape was breaking. And uh, there's a great moment in this movie about him where Jim Carrey plays him and he says, uh, somebody says, "What is there something wrong? And he goes, no, I put it in there. Everyone's going to think their TV's broken. And it just <laughs> reminds me of, you know, put in the FMV, put in the glitches, you know, people are going to think the TV's broken. <laughs> What's wrong with this thing? Yeah. 
Well, the last uh, subject that we still have on our list is a split screen. Mm. Split screen, uh, i.e. local co-op. Because co the split screen, yes, the couch co-op. Because uh, it was basically one of the most popular ways to play in the 1990s and early 2000s. I remember hundreds of hours I've spent with friends sitting together on the couch playing video games in split screen. For example, Super Mario Kart from 1992, Mario Kart 64 from 1996. Of course, there are such famous titles like Golden Eye, mm -hmm. which are, uh, this should be 1997, where there's a, even, I think, a four-player split screen mode. Yeah, yeah. That was uh, at every sleepover party. That was the game. It was like yeah. 9.30 rolled around. The pizza was done. Everybody popped in Goldeneye. And it was it was time to, you know, just could do a, an all slappers round. That was it. <laughs> yeah, And it's peculiar, right? Because I do remember playing so much split screen stuff with uh, siblings, with friends and so on. Um, when I think back to it i just can't help but acknowledge how small the screen was yeah yeah it's like we already had like a small tv and then it was split in like two or even four and so you would basically just like i would just like sit directly in front of the screen to be able to identify where i was going in mario kart you had to because there was yeah. no there was no yeah i'm thinking of you know now everybody we all have these really nice big uh flat screen tvs with hd capability but if you were lucky as a kid, you had maybe a 30-inch CRT, <laughs> maybe, and it yeah. was trying to see, you know, your your cart or your uh, your character in Goldeneye, you really had to be, all right, all right, boys, everybody up against the screen, <laughs> we got to see what's <laughs> going on. <laughs> and there were some titles that really relished in this. I mean, Halo is a game that I personally never played in split screen, nor have I ever played it on my own, um, but Gears of War. Uh, and then I think one of the later ones that I still remember was Resistance 3 by mm. Insomniac Games. It came out in 2011 and it was one of the games where I remember where the conversation had already started about whether split screen and couch co-op is still a thing. Well, uh, be because at this time, online gameplay was, exactly. it was, it was booming and it was accessible to people. Yeah. Back in yeah. the 90s, you were lucky if you had a dial-up connection. There was no way you were going to play. The The closest you would get is LAN parties where you would everybody would hook up their computers or you would be in the same room with a bunch of different consoles. That's how you would play these multiplayer games. But as Xbox Live developed and as the PlayStation Network uh, kind of boomed right around the time of Resistance 3, I would say, it was... Uh, you didn't have to have a friend... <laughs> to play a game with. You didn't need to do split screen. You could just log into the online lobby and then have at it. Exactly. Yeah. And while there were some games that just continued doing split screen, such as the Borderlands games or the Lego games, I remember, they were very innovative when it yeah. comes to the split screen. They basically split the screen only when necessary, like when two characters would walk too far from one another and then they would split it at an angle that made sense. Mm. And when you come back together, then it automatically just merges a really smart way to do it. But uh, for the most part, I would agree that the predominant way to play together was online or it became online. And it was just basically the like the more progressive games would pride themselves on online multiplayer. 
mm. and the couch co-op and split screen, they would be kind of old technologies that came out of fashion. Now, this changed in peculiar ways only in recent years. Well, I wouldn't say it changed. It's still the case. It's still the case that most games don't have co-op split screen stuff anymore. Online is still the way to play. But I was surprised to find that titles such as A Way Out by Hazelight Studios and It Takes Two, also Hazelight Studios 2021, um, that they really relished in the split screen. They brought back the split screen in, uh, with a bang, basically, by yeah. not just making it an assess uh, not just making it a thing where, okay, so this is just the way that two people play together, but by making it a crucial feature of the game that you play locally together. Well, and imagine you know this incredible idea that only one person needed to have the game for you to play it together wow yeah how if generous you, if you can believe it <laughs> but that took that took off and i think i don't want to i don't want to chalk it all up to the pandemic because i do think that there was some there was a lot of uh hope for couch co-op games prior to when everybody was stuck on their couch together but it takes two came out at such a good time for people to be at home and to play together with family members, friends, people who were kind of in their COVID circle who could come over without fear of getting everybody sick. I think that it, I, I think it kind of took off because yeah, we, we all have, we're used to online gameplay now, but the idea that it's kind of novel to sit down on the couch and play a game with somebody, uh, especially when we, we were all kind of starved for companionship like that, it, it really, I mean, it, it got Game of the Year for a reason. Yeah, and it's a whole different social experience. You mm. can't simulate this or replace this by online multiplayer where you just hear the voice of another person over your headphones. Um, it is a different experience sitting together on a couch and playing these games. And the games, A Way Out and It Takes Two, they are really designed around that split screen. They are... Uh, they play with it on the dimension of narrative mm. and uh, in the aesthetics and they make it a necessity, right? I don't know. I think, don't they have, I think a way out might have added online co-op later on or something. I'm not quite it sure. It did, yeah. Mm, you can, but but you both can games are up. really conceptualized for, um, for local split screen. <clears throat> That's the way to play. Specifically so that you can especially with a way out so that you can in real time say, no, 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 don't do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it's so beautiful because I think the split screen, it turned from, yeah, we don't have any other idea and we want to allow people to play together into let's implement the split screen as a deliberate kind of decision in order to make a point, a narrative point, an mm. aesthetic point, a point in gameplay. So, I think with all three of these dynamics that we've discussed now, with pixel art, with full motion video, and with split screen, we can tell how video games as a medium became more self-aware of what they are and of their history by implementing aspects of the history and bringing it back into the present uh, with careful deliberation. I love that it it's kind of, it's always iterative where it starts with technological limitation, then nostalgia enters into it, and then it turns into innovation in all three of these ways that we talked about. It's a, it's, as you say, video games kind of figured out what they were. And I think that they've, uh, 
they take all these disparate elements and you get the right person and the right amount of nostalgia for something that they played as a kid and you get a really cool game like it takes two. Now, of course, there are more kind of aspects of video game culture that disappeared and then reappeared at a later point. Um, for example, we've got things like the Castlevania, the Metroidvania on our list, the point and click adventure, uh, the roguelike or roguelite. Uh, there are many things that we could still discuss. Maybe that's something we could do in a follow-up episode. But most importantly, we are curious to hear what you think, what your uh, most memorable experiences are with dynamics, aesthetics, or specific kind of gameplay types that disappeared and then made a more or less big comeback. If you want to share your thoughts and questions with us, then you can head over to studyingpixels.com contact. And of course, if you want to support us, then you can join Studying Pixels Plus, or you can just leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We would really appreciate that. Thank you so very much, and we will be back next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.